Hello, and welcome to the Green Minds podcast. Showcasing the science, stories and solutions behind climate change with Phoebe Scott, Alex Miller, Lottie Flashness and Guy Wilkinson. For this week's episode of the IB Green Minds podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Charles Howarth, who's Global Head of Commercial Operations at G Renewable Energy's offshore wind business. Welcome, Charles, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Alex, thanks very much for having me on. I'm very excited to take part in this podcast and share some of uh, some of my knowledge from the, the offshore wind business and renewable energies generally. So just to set the context, please could you give a brief introduction about yourself, including your background and your career to date? Sure. So I, um, I went to university at Imperial College, so I'm actually an alumni of Imperial College uh, where I studied physics and then uh, Following my master's in physics there, I went on to do a PhD uh, also in the physics department, did uh, actually ultra-fast laser physics at Imperial, um, got my PhD. And then I was looking uh, around trying to find a, a role in industry after you know being in academia for, for such a long time and uh, had the opportunity to join General Electric. Uh, it was the first company I joined after university and I joined onto a leadership program called the Commercial Leadership Program. Uh, it was a rotational program, fantastic opportunity for me. So I was able to do rotations across the energy uh, sector. So I worked in gas turbines, I worked in GE Nuclear in the US. I changed locations as well with each of the rotations. So I was in the US, in Italy, in Austria and many other places and uh, got to see really the whole energy space. At what point I came off program, moved to France. I worked for the, for the gas turbine business there. So selling combined cycle gas turbines, focusing in Southern Europe. So I was negotiating deals in uh, Greece and Cyprus and, and places like that. Uh, and then after a few years, I then changed over and I changed direction and I moved into onshore wind. So at that time, uh, GE had newly acquired the Enron uh, wind business for onshore. I moved to the UK at that time. Uh, and interestingly, I was also doing a little bit of touching on offshore. Um, I had a few meetings actually about Dogger Bank. This was like 10, 11 years ago, um, uh, pitching a completely different turbine in those days. Did that for a number of years. I then got onto a, um, a, a kind of a mid-career accelerator in GE called the Accelerated Leadership Program. Uh, joined that one. I was leading kind of our risk review board at that time. So all of the deals we were doing globally, they were coming to this, uh, what we call the R table, where we'd review the deals. And so I was seeing all of the onshore wind projects across all of EMEA, Asia, Australia. So everywhere outside the Americas, I was looking after. So fascinating role. So again, I got to see kind of the wind industry more or less globally at that time for a number of years. And then I moved to Dubai. I spent three years running commercial operations in the Middle East. So I covered all of North Africa, Middle East, Pakistan, and Turkey, led uh, the commercial organization there, doing, again, onshore wind uh, contracts, new units and services. Uh, and then I was fortunate enough, this opportunity came up to join our offshore business in GE. Um, I relocated to Paris, and I'm now currently leading our global kind of tendering and proposals team for offshore wind deals uh, around the world. Great. So it sounds like a fascinating career path and, and great to be able to welcome a, a Imperial alumni onto the uh, podcast. Could you just now give an overview of G's offshore wind business in particular and the types of products and services that you provide? Sure. So our offshore business uh, right now has been really going from strength to strength. 
uh, it came into GE actually when we did the um, acquisition of Alstom. So uh, Alstom was acquired in 2016. Um, with the Alstom acquisition, they came the offshore wind business and they had an existing product. So they had the Haliad 6 megawatt product. So this is a turbine that we've deployed offshore. Um, we've got the first um, offshore wind project in the US at Block Island. We have um, a, a commercial project called Mercur. We've got a number of prototypes around, and we're actually just going into the execution of a project in France right now with the 6 megawatt Haliad X. Um, uh, with the 6 megawatt Haliad, we've now launched the Haliad X turbine, which is our latest and greatest product. It's, um, it's rated between like 12 and 14 megawatts. It's got a 220 meter uh, rotor diameter, so it's a completely phenomenal machine. It was really a game changer when we launched it. Uh, the biggest uh, wind turbine in the world, the biggest offshore wind turbine in the world at the time. Um, and from that, we've you know had had some success. Now we've secured a, a pipeline of deals, including in the UK, and and really we're selling the so this Haliad platform. Plus, at the same time, we sell services to go along it with it. So we sell the equipment. We also do the installation, so we look after all of the installation commissioning. Customers usually provide the jack-up vessels, so the, the crane vessels, but then we do all of the installation. We have the commissioning teams, and then once we once we hand over to the customer, we then support and we offer services, you know, up to 20-plus years, uh, looking after the turbines for the customers, providing parts or doing the services, um, basically whatever the customer needs during the lifetime of the project. Great. That, that sounds fascinating. And we'll, we'll come into the specifics a little bit more um, later. But just with, with that context, um, I think it'd be good to just get your views on the global offshore wind market. And as a starter, it'd just be helpful to dig into the differences between um, onshore and offshore wind. As you said, said you spent quite a bit of time on the uh, on, onshore side of things. Could you just talk a bit about that, perhaps touching on how the two technologies differ, maybe from engineering perspective and project economics as well? Sure. So maybe I'll just start very briefly with the with the market and what's happening. So as I said, I've been in the business now for about 18 months um, and, and offshore has always been there, you know, it's always been a business it has been going now. So it's a you know, it's it's a relatively mature business. Some people think it's a young business, but it's relatively mature. I think our first offshore project in GE was done many years ago in Arklow. I think it's more than 10, 12 years old now. So the business has been going for quite some time. What's really amazed me in the last 18 months is just the explosion in the market. So the offshore market globally, the, the, the market forecast, the 10-year forward-looking market forecast has just been growing and growing. Every time we go back out, look at the analysts' forecasts, we recast internally what's happening. The market is just jumping in size. Um, and, and, you know, it's personally surprised me how much the, how bullish the market is and how much growth we're expecting to see going forward. The, the drivers behind that are pretty straightforward. Uh, effectively, it's the only mature technology that, that you can deploy at large scale, renewable technology. So if you want to do multi-gigawatt projects at the country level, it's very, very hard to do that for most countries with, you know, onshore wind, uh, solar and others. So if you want a high capacity factor, you want it at scale, you want to industrialize it, offshore wind is, is just a fantastic uh, solution for that. And the other really important thing about offshore is it's, it can be located pretty close to the load centers. 
So if you look at where, you know, human beings put themselves around the world, a lot of the big cities around the world are on the coast for, you know, historical reasons um, due to trade and all the rest of it. And it means that you can start to locate your power generation much closer. This is something that we're really seeing in the United States. So on the East Coast of the U.S., um, you know, the United States got a lot of lands, but the free land to build onshore, for example, or solar tends to be, you know, in, in, in the Midlands of uh, in middle America, and it's very far from load centers on the coast. And so there's a lot of problems getting transmission and all this kind of stuff. So what we're seeing now is that being able to deploy offshore wind closer to the big cities is really a, is a win for that. So, so those are the primary drivers. And then what we saw, I think COVID has had a big effect. So the impact of COVID in the last year or so, We've seen a big push for renewable energy. There's a lot of government's uh, focus on growing and industries, getting jobs in different countries. And offshore wind is a great way of doing that because, again, you can deploy multi-gigawatt projects. You can bring, you know, the, the jobs that come with it. You get marshalling harbors. A lot of governments are asking for local content and other things like that. So, again, it takes a lot of boxes. It just means it's, uh, it's getting very strong. And then on top of all of that, it's, uh, it's a cost parity with, uh, with grid power. So we're seeing in many countries that you're able to deploy offshore at kind of grid parity cost levels. So it's not the cheapest form of renewables. So the comparison to onshore and, and solar, onshore and solar base uh, levelized cost of energy is cheaper than offshore wind, but you just can't deploy it at the same scale. It, there's not the base, the permitting time. If you want to do a three gigawatt project in the UK, it's impossible. You can't find that land. It would take you you know, 50 years to try and find permitting for that. So <laughs> the nimbyism gets in the way and blocks everything. So, so that's really the driver. And as I said, it's blowing up. What we're seeing is really a lead in, in, in Northern Europe in the North Sea. So UK Island, France, uh, we're looking at the Netherlands, Denmark. Uh, we're seeing Poland's coming in strong, Lithuania, Germany, all of these countries. Luckily, they can do fixed bottom because we've got good sea conditions where you can install you know, directly in the seabed good wind speed. So those markets are all going to grow uh, significantly. We've now seen the US, especially with the Biden administration have come in, they're really pushing. We just uh, signed the contract recently for the first commercial scale offshore wind farm on the East Coast of the US. Um, and then the US East Coast is going to grow. Um, and then we're seeing a lot of activity now in Asia Pacific as well. So there was just um, a large auction uh, in Japan uh, at the end of this year. We should be hearing about multiple gigawatts being um, awarded uh, through that auction system. China's still growing. We're seeing a lot of activity in Taiwan. South Korea is now growing. Uh, and then it's starting to spread outwards. So we're starting to have conversations in places like Vietnam, Australia. So yeah, really growing. And then I think we'll talk about floating in a minute, but floating will then unlock an even greater market once that becomes a uh, commercial scale. Fascinating. It sounds like a, a market poise for even more growth. And But just to yeah. give the listeners um, a bit of an idea of as to what we're talking about when we say gigawatts, what, what can a gigawatt do, so to speak? So, yeah, it's, it's very, very hard to put a gigawatt into perspective because it's a, it's a huge amount of power. But, but effectively, you know, I, I always think about it in terms of different types of power stations, but from a basic level, when you look at the scales of power, you know, you have a, a solar panel that you'll see out on the side of the road that's that's maybe measured on, on the watts or kilowatts scale. So very, very small. Um, the initial wind turbines, if you're driving around in the countryside uh, and you see wind turbines out there, they're normally on the megawatt scale, one, two, three, four megawatts kind of scale. Um, 
So when you're talking about, you know, a thousand megawatts, there's a gigawatt, it's, it's a humongous amount of power. You're talking about being able to power millions of homes. Uh, typically, like a, one of the, like a big nuclear reactor or something on the scale of a gigawatt, roughly. Um, so, so you're talking about the biggest size of power generation that you can get is, is gigawatt power generation. Um, let me find some of the numbers for you here. So when a good way of a good way of comparing is having a look at how many kind of households that you can you can power so i'll give you an example from the uk so we've won the dogger bank uh, projects in the uk the dogger bank projects is about 3.6 gigawatts of um of, of offshore wind and and that we think that's going to power something the equivalent of about six million homes in the uk just from the uh, wind power from that offshore project which is about five percent of the uk's electricity demand significant amounts of power that's huge yeah no that, that's that is really really cool and you, you mentioned um floating so we can jump yep. into that uh could you just explain what that is um for listeners who may not have heard that and then yeah. the opportunities and challenges sort of behind that sure so so floating is a really fancy fascinating space and it's getting a lot of attention recently we're having a lot of you know customers and people talking to us about it um so offshore to date, um, primarily apart from a few demonstrators, has all been what we call fixed bottom. So what happens is you, you build a foundation that you attach to the seabed. You can either do it with a monopile, which is a big tube that you hammer into the seabed. Um, and at the top of it, you put a, a flat transition piece and you can stick the wind turbine on top. You can build a gravity base. You build a big concrete base that you sink and then you know, stick the turbine on that or, or a jacket foundation where you kind of bolt it down. So those are the traditional ones that, uh, that we've been using. Now, the limitation on those is as you get into deeper and deeper water, they get more and more expensive and they get more and more difficult design. Um, they heavily interact with the wave conditions as well. So it's a big uh, interaction between winds and wave and water depth. And, and as I said, as we're getting further and further offshore, you get deeper and deeper. And the other thing is that a lot of countries in the world can't deploy fixed bottom, um, especially if you look at, for example, the West Coast of the US, like along California coastline, there's a kind of an ocean cliff there. It's too deep. You can't do it. Norway is another place where you don't have many locations. So this fixed bottom approach that we have right now really limits down the places where you can deploy offshore winds. So the next thing which is happening, and there's been prototypes, actually some on the high wind project that Equinor did in the North Sea, that's been running for many, many, many years now. They, they built a, a floating demonstrator. And effectively, you build, a, there are many different engineering designs but you build a floating substructure and then there are different types of ways of doing it but then you can stick the turbine on top of this floating structure and then all you have to do is kind of anchor it with some cables to the seabed and then you run a wire off it what that does is it unlocks a much bigger potential to put the wind turbines in many more places uh, offshore Right now, what's happening is there's a lot of uh, countries announcing auctions. They're really pushing for commercial scale deployment. We see that by about 2030, you're going to start seeing real commercial scale deployment of floating. A number of different countries also leading the charge on that. Uh, the only big difference is that it's a new technology and there's a, there's a cost differential. Right now, it costs a lot more to do a floating foundation uh, than it does to do a fixed bottom foundation. But as the... As, uh, projects get engineered better as, as we start to commercialize and start to industrialize the process of making these foundations, the costs will come down the normal cost curve. And then we see 2030 onwards, 
there's going to be a big, big growth in floating. And that's what's really going to drive the market, you know, 20, 30 years from now, in my view. Right. Thank you. You mentioned auctions, and I think that's that's how most of these projects are procured. And at the start of this year, there's a lot of press coverage about the high prices that certain oil majors have been paying. And we talk about the UK in the, in the latest round of seabed leasing um, auctions. Do, do you have any views or insights into this and, and what the potential implications for the sector could be? Yeah, so, so just to give some context for, for, for all the listeners, the, the UK in particular did a seabed leasing round. And, uh, and, and there was quite some, I say, some surprise in the market because the, the, the cost or the price that was paid by the companies to secure those seabed leases to develop future offshore projects was, was very, very high. And, and they took very high, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of kind of leasing liabilities um, just to develop the projects. So I, I actually took that in a very positive way. So from my side, the fact that you've got some of the biggest, strongest companies in the world willing to invest tremendous amounts of money to secure future projects just shows how bullish everybody is on offshore. Now, all of these companies will have run detailed financial analysis. They would have, you know, selected their pricing, you know, forecasting what the future cost of energy is going to be and all of these things. So I'm sure that uh, this was done with a lot of consideration on their side. And it just means that they see that the cost of offshore is going to come down. It's, you know, it's going to be still at parity. Uh, in the UK in particular, we see offshore winds uh, costing, as I said, being at grid parity level. That means at the same price that other forms of generation like gas and coal and everything else are producing. So yeah, I just see it as a very positive sign that uh, a lot of significant companies believe in in the offshore market and where it's going to be in the future. Mm-hmm. Right. And just sticking on, on that auction, I think it, there was a slightly new structure where the developers were required to pay an upfront annual almost option fee until the, yeah. the, the development is finally agreed and approved. And there have been some saying, well, this is going to actually push up the costs um, in the in the long term, because where, where are they going to go? They're going to get passed down. It, where where do you where do you stand on that? So that cost that they pay will be reflected in the financial model. You know for sure. Naturally, it's a cost that the developer has. Um, how that translates into a final energy price for the UK consumers is you know not not completely obvious because it depends. You know what type of technology do they deploy? What's the LCOE of the turbines itself? you know, mixed with the wind conditions, mixing with the cost of financing. It's a very, very complicated model. And that part of the, of the leases is one part of it. Yes, that cost will go into the projects, but maybe it's going to be offset by other things like uh, improved turbine technologies. Hmm. So, yeah, hard to say, but again, everyone's on a level playing field. And what I've seen in the renewable industry in general is that we, we don't see that costs are going to jump significantly beyond what the rest of the energy market is paying. So as I said, I always like to compare the cost that we have as an industry against the other forms of technology. So you look at, as I said, gas turbines, coal, nuclear. I think even with these seabed costs, you're not going to be exceeding what you pay for an alternative type technology. Um, so you're still deploying very large scale grid parity costing renewable power so that's why i think these companies made those investments fascinating insights just now wanting to shift the conversation to focus on ge's offshore wind business and um you mentioned dogger bank 
earlier and I know you guys have been heavily involved in that and I think it would be the, the world's largest wind farm when complete could you just talk about your involvement in the project and touch on a bit more on the, the engineering feet that are the uh the, the turbines that you you're selling there yeah, so so Dogger Bank is um, is a very very important project for us. As I mentioned, it's three point six gigawatts. It's three phases: Dogger Bank A, B, and C. Um, we just signed the contracts for C a number of months ago, so um, we're now ramping up into the the execution phase for those projects. Um, as I said, the, really the a significant milestone for us to deploy our Haliadex technology there. So I'll talk about a couple of different things. One is the project itself and, and you know the interactions that we have around a project like that. And then I'll also quickly talk about this, this Haliad uh, turbine and maybe some specifics around this technology that we see in offshore. So focusing on the Haliad turbine, first of all, as I said, it's our it's our big platform. Uh, initially, it was launched as a 12 megawatt uh, turbine, which is, you know, again, I came from the onshore business, so 12 megawatts for one individual turbine is, is pretty mind-blowing uh, for me. And the, the the turbine is, you know, on the scale of like the Eiffel Tower. If you ever see this on the infographics online, um, if you have a search for it, you'll see that from an engineering perspective, this is just an absolute beast of a machine. The nacelle at the back, which holds the the, the the direct drive generator is a three-story high building. You've got um, 220 meters swept lengths. Each blade is the length of a Boeing 747. So you've got two Boeing 747s tip to tip flying around offshore, generating colossal amounts of power. I think one rotation of the blades powers something like a number of house for 48 hours. So you know it's 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 very very hard for you know you and I in our day to day to put in context, the size of these machines. And then, and this has been really facilitated by all of the years of engineering that gone before it from the wind industry. So there's a huge amount of technology around aerodynamics, building the blades, making them lighter. So we own LM Wind Power, which is a blade manufacturer. They played a critical role in launching this product. So how do you manufacture you know, these blades at the scale? Um, how do you optimize the aerodynamics? Um, how do you produce them in a, in a lightweight fashion that you don't need to put a lot of steel up tower to support them? Or how do you reduce the weight so the cost can come down? We then uh, developed a direct drive generator. So we, we decided to go the route with no gearbox. So onshore, our typical onshore turbines have gearboxes, which are, which are brilliant uh, technology. It brings the weight down. It has a lot of advantages. But in an offshore environment where you really want to reduce the number of parts and components, really from a serviceability perspective, you really don't want to be going out there having to do a lot of servicing, oil changes and things like that. Um, we, we went down the route of a direct drive generator. So there's a lot, of, a lot of design energy goes into trying to optimize the turbine for serviceability and then making sure that you can, you know, minimize much time on the turbines, keep them up and running very high availability levels. Uh, so that's on the turbine side. Then uh, on, on Dogger Bank itself, you know, th that project's been, been developed for a very, very long time. I, I, was, I recall going for meetings talking about it like 10 years ago with the developers in those days. And, and on that side, we do a lot of, a lot of work looking at optimizing the, the, the layout of the turbines. So the spacing in between the turbines is very important. You want to make sure that, you know, when the wind touches one turbine, it doesn't then, you don't get, you get a turbulence effect that you don't have turbulence and wake impact in the turbines behind. It's a lot of energy and, 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 and work goes into optimizing the layouts, the maximum power production, 
Um, we're also tweaking the levels of the generator. So this Haliad platform now goes from 12 megawatts up to 14, 14.7. So we can actually tweak the, the power rating and that allows you to change the number of turbines in the wind farm while keeping the same overall power production. So a lot of work optimizing that and it's kind of techno-economic analysis to, to optimize it. And you're always solving for the lowest cost of energy in the end for the customer. And just uh, out of curiosity, and I'm, I'm, I don't know the answer to this, can you, can you optimize them sort of real time or are they, once they're in the ground, they're sort of, they're, yes. that, that's where you No, you, you, absolutely they do. So, and again, this is one of the big uh, technological breakthroughs and it's an advancement that keeps happening. So they have, we have very sophisticated control systems on the turbines. So actually the turbines are, are continuously optimizing even, they're actually optimizing the blade angle because you control the power with the blade angle and each blade is individually pitched and it's individually pitched on each rotation. So you're, you're directly optimizing it. They, they do a lot of what they call kind of model-based uh, control. So they run kind of a, a simulation of what the turbine should look like in a mathematical model. And then they make sure that the physical turbine is matching it so that you get the maximum power production. Um, you know, you need that to control if there's gusts or turbulence or storms and other things. So yes, so that's happening. But then also on a wind farm level, you're able to tweak and, and adjust the parameters so that you get maximum power production on the wind farm on the whole. Sometimes, for example, there's some technologies out there where it may be worth to reduce some of the some of the loads on the turbine at the front of the wind farm so that the ones at the back can pick up more energy, reduce the wake, and, and it's called kind of wake optimization. So a bunch of different technologies out there uh, across the wind industry. Oh, so that sounds as, as complicated as, as flying a plane or, or maybe a fleet of planes when you talk about the whole the whole project. <laughs> yeah, and that's what you're doing because each blade is like flying a plane, right? So each blade, you're trying to get the maximum lift and power out of it um, on a second-by-second -second basis. So that's exactly what's going on. But it's all done with the control system. So. Cool. Um, okay, so, so now, now switching to essentially the other side of things. So we've talked about all the positives. Um, and when, when building these offshore wind turbines, you talked about putting a big slab of concrete in the seabed. Uh, what, what are the negative externalities associated with offshore wind and how significant are they? Yeah, so obviously if you build any structure, any human you know, man-made interference, uh, it, it has an impact. Uh, so a few different areas that, that get looked at. Now, this is really done by our developer partners. So this is this is all through the development um, of the projects. And, and this is where there's a very long time period. So these projects take, you know, eight to 10 years in development very often. So very, very long time. What they're doing in those eight to 10 years is, is, is trying to minimize all of those external factors. So um, looking at visual impact assessments and making sure that you're not having very detrimental impacts visually on the on the landscape. Uh, there's a lot of work done for marine studies, making sure that you're not going to be interfering in, with, with marine animals. Um, then we also, they do environmental studies around birds and migratory patterns, all things like that. So um, yeah, that's all handled through the permitting process. And that that's, as I said, it's a very long process. It takes many, many years to go through. But those are the primary ones again from my side and i'm biased right because i'm in the industry but when i look at the the real negative long-term consequences of wind i really think they're very very minor compared to the alternatives so if you look at the turbine itself you can all that goes offshore it will last say 20 30 years 
And then afterwards, what happens? Well, you can take it out. And what do you get? You get a bunch of materials, primarily steel, um, other primary metals, which you can recycle. There's a lot of work in the industry going into looking at blade recycling. Um, there's different ways of doing it. And GE's uh, got a lot of initiatives internally looking at ways to handle blade waste. But again, it, it's a glass fiber blade. It's not, you know, highly toxic material. So there's ways of, of handling those wastes in a safe way compared to the alternative, which would be, you know, burning fossil fuels, which, you know, everyone knows can lead to climate change, which has a much bigger externality, or you're looking at nuclear or other things which have other impacts. And as I said, the other sources of renewable energy, like onshore wind and solar, well, they're on land. So then they tend to have a lot more interaction with the communities, which can be problematic. So uh, I actually think one of the reasons offshore is taking off and why you can permit such big projects is because the externalities are much more limited. Okay. And refraining from going too far into the, the technical details, but as renewable energy is by nature intermittent, and as renewables become a greater percentage of the overall energy mix, what sort of solutions are out there to combat that and, and maybe the price cannibalization, given that the marginal cost of these things is, I think, zero? Yeah. So again, so the price cannibalization is, is, is an effect that you see when, if you have a very high wind season, we've seen it in some markets like in Germany, um, if you have very high winds across the country, all of the wind farms in the country all go to full power at the same time. And because you have a dynamic price for electricity, the price falls, and therefore you can either get to zero or negative pricing at some kind of times in the market. Um, so that's a reality. Uh, same thing when the sun's shining or the solar panels on, we see it in the UK, you know, the power price drops, they start shutting down, you know, gas turbines and coal power stations, and you start having these days of pure renewable power but the price is dropping so this is the cannibalization um there's different mechanisms that you can deal with it some are technological mechanisms so you might think about storage um, and other solutions like that so on the technology side there's a lot of different ways of doing it and there will not be one answer so you have hydro and pumped hydro pumping you know reversing dams and pumping water back up the hill to use at later times that's done a little bit limited geographically because you have to have the right you know, you know geographic conditions you have to have a hill and a water source and all the rest but um so you have pumped hydro what you see coming on board now is a lot of um, other forms of storage are being developed so uh, thermal storage you've got cryogenic air-cooled storage you've got batteries um as well batteries tend to be better for doing fast response less kind of long-term storage my personal belief is that I, I believe that the electrification of transportation is actually going to have one of the biggest impacts here. Because when everybody is driving 10, 15 years from now electric vehicles and everybody's got a 50, 100 kilowatt hour battery pack sitting on their driveway, and keep in mind that vehicles are sitting stationary for 90% of their usable time, those vehicles will be providing the grid support to take power when it's windy and sunny and then discharge it when you know there's a lull so and 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 i think we shouldn't we shouldn't forget about the huge quantity of batteries which are going to be coming onto the market and available through 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 vehicles and that kind of transport electrification transportation so that's on the technology side the other one's demand control so tons and tons of companies right now working on dynamically controlling demand so you know power prices go up can you switch off of somebody's refrigerator for 30 minutes Yes, you know, 
all the kind of thermal storage. But the other thing is as well, if you look at um, electrification of heating in homes. So once you start having dynamic price signals in the market and you see a lot of companies like Octopus Energy and others right now working with that, they're looking at it for vehicle charging, but think about it for, for heating and, and cooling in your home. You can store heat. So, you know, heat up your hot water system through your electricity system when the prices are low. And then obviously when the prices are high, you turn off the heating system and, and away you go. So, so I believe personally, electric vehicles, electrification, transportation, electrification of, of heating is going to provide a massive load balancing in the market. Um, and then you'll have other supplies, uh, other ways, including batteries, thermal storage, pump storage in the background. So I think the market will solve it. Then on the market side of things, there are also financial mechanisms. So again, dynamic pricing, you'll have a lot of companies playing arbitrage. Um, you will have other forms of power generation. So you will have probably for many years to come, some backup gas turbines and other kinds of power systems when there's no renewables, um, but they will be working really on the marginal level when the price spikes, you'll see the gas turbine starting and, and just acting as a buffer. And that will slowly phase out over time as those other technologies I mentioned come on board. But as I said, it's all baked in, in into the system. And we've not seen any countries to date having, you know, massive blackouts or problems. I don't think we've seen that tipping point when there's so many renewables that you start to destabilize your grid. That's been since the whole time I've been in this industry in renewables, people have been telling me, oh, renewables are going to start causing blackouts. It's never happened. And, and the grid is just evolving and technology is evolving. And I'm, I'm a physicist by training. What I love about this is there's no physics problem to solve. There's some really nice engineering, a lot of kind of consumer products that can be brought to market, but it's, there's no physics behind it right now to solve these problems. It's just about market mechanisms, technology, nice packages, making it invisible to the home consumer or the industrial consumer. And that's where all of the, I'll say, innovation is going to come. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. Well, it's been an extremely insightful conversation, which I'm sure all our listeners are appreciative of. And so just conscious of the time, uh, we, we've got two questions that we typically ask our guests upon sort of closing or yeah, final questions. So I'll move on to those if I may. So the first is what advice would you give to someone who's considering a career in the offshore wind industry? First of all, uh, the first thing I'll say is it's a great industry to launch a career in, especially now. Uh, so I have a lot of people contacting me talking about joining the industry. And, and I always say to them, you know, right now, if you want to build a career for the next 10, 15, 20 years and know that you're going to enter into an industry that is going to be there in 10 or 15 years from now, the offshore space is just so exciting. The amount of growth we're seeing is tremendous. We've talked about it already, but it's a great space to start a career in for that reason. So you know that you'd be, I would say, investing your time into a segment that's going to be around. And so, so on, on that side, very good place to look at. It's a very, very big industry in terms of very large scale. So we don't have a lot of very small startups in it. So the other thing that I would say that's a little bit special about the offshore industry is you're typically looking at very large companies involved in it. So if you want to get if you want to get into the space and be you know working for an innovative little startup company, 
you, you may be looking at some some periphery that's feeding into large companies, but the best way to get in is to join a large company, one of the you know oil majors that's getting to offshore, one of the big OEMs like ourselves, and or 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 looking at the services side. So maybe looking at the companies providing vessels or or cables or a lot of people doing consultancy. So we have a lot of companies looking at this kind of optimization, uh, doing environmental assessments, uh, uh, wind turbine optimization, these things. So there's a lot of different areas and avenues to get in, but it's definitely a very kind of special industry because it takes such large scale to deploy that, that you tend to have a certain type of company there. Great. Uh, I think some people from our course might raise their eyebrows in terms of um, thinking about joining an oil major, but as, as we've talked about, <laughs> they're really getting into the, the sector. So fascinating opportunities um no and that's then, been a surprise yeah. for me as well so i joined you know i was working onshore for many years and typically work with a lot of smaller developers and and uh, kind of utility companies and now what i find amazing is that we're spending all our time now well not all the time but a large amount of our time talking to these very big oil and gas companies that as somebody that was in the renewable segment myself well they were really on the periphery but now I mean, they're very serious and, and the oil majors are the ones that are going to be leading the charge for offshore winds. And for me, I think it's a great thing. They're bringing a skill set that, that the, say, the onshore winds organizations don't have, which is dealing with the offshore environment, which is very special. So they bring a skill set there and they bring a balance sheet and they bring a focus and they bring good engineers. Uh, so that's why they're going to be successful in the future in offshore. Interesting. And then... The final question is, if listeners were to take away one key message from our conversation today, what would you like it to be? Look, I, I hope the message is uh, that everyone takes away is that the offshore wind business is huge and it's here to stay and it's going to be providing a significant portion of the world's energy in the future and it's going to be doing it in a clean way. So I hope uh, everyone takes a very positive outcome from uh, from this industry, because I, I really believe it's uh, it's it's going to be changing the world. It's going to be changing the way that we power the world in the future. Well, that's a fascinating and positive note to finish on. So I think all that's left for me to do now is just thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Alex. And thanks for inviting me along. It was fascinating for me too.